in the tradition, right effort. Or sometimes other words are used like skillful effort or wise effort. All these words um, are attempts to describe a certain kind of effort. Right effort, not in the sense of as opposed to wrong effort, uh, skillful effort, not as opposed to, um, you know, unskillful effort so much, but really to point to a certain kind of effort that is required for this rather delicate and big job of awakening. So the first thing I want to talk about is, before we can even begin to talk about effort, we have to remember to what end are we making effort. There's a lot of effort made in our world. Some of us are suffering from the kind of effort we've had to make in our world, the effort to compete, to stay ahead, to uh, get ahead, to make money, to survive to um, prove ourselves, and then we look on a more global level at the kinds of effort that are being um, made for uh, domination, power, control, expressions of not the best motivations, expressions of greed, of hatred, of delusion, tremendous efforts in the world uh, made under the motivation of these forces of mind. So when we come on retreat, we are, first of all, looking at what is our intention in this practice? What are we, what are we coming here to find? What is it that we feel is our deepest intention in practicing? One of my favorite expressions of the intention of practice comes from a man named Ash Bhagosha, who lived some centuries ago, was a Buddhist practitioner, and like many of these things that you find in the tradition, they're as relevant now as it was when he wrote this. So let me read it to you. He says, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king, or they retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, If they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, 
then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. A life not of self, self preoccupation, selfish aims, motivations, but a life of truth. This is really the largest intention of our practice. The Buddha expressed it this way. You know, after he had his enlightenment experience sitting under the Bodhi tree, and then he wondered after that experience whether or not to teach, and then he finally decided, yes, he would teach, and he came out from his seclusion and was walking, and um, people would ask him what he had been up to, because he probably looked quite radiant, quite amazing, you know, having penetrated to the degree that he had this understanding. So people would ask him, you know, what have you been up to? What, what have you been practicing? And I've always been struck by the fact that he didn't say, well, <laughs> let me tell you. You know, I was this prince, and then I left, and dad was really unhappy, but I had to go. And he didn't go into some whole story about it, nothing like that. Nor did he just tell about his experience and how great it was, and if only you could do this, and you too would have this experience called enlightenment. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? His first teaching was called the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, the fact of it, not that this is something to aspire to, but with that before we can do anything else, we need to know that there is this fact of suffering in the world, this, this fact of unsatisfactoriness, this fact that we confront when we, when we look within, when we look without. We see it all around us, but somehow we, we tend to go into denial around it. So the fact of suffering, the fact that there is a cause of suffering, and that there is an end to suffering, and that there is a path to uh, take up if one is interested in pursuing the possibility of ending suffering. So what is the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering, he said, was wanting in the simplest possible um, kind of um, description of what this might be is, I like to say it like this, the desire for anything to be different than it is. Whenever we are wanting something to be different than it is, we are caught in a kind of suffering. For example, right now, if you look in your own experience, is, there, is it possible that you might see right now, in this very moment, you're wanting something to be different than it is? Maybe a better chair, maybe a better cushion, maybe... You want a drink of water right now. Maybe you want me to stop talking. Maybe you want something to be different in your experience. Even though it may not be huge, still we can begin to notice how 
pervasive this wanting is, this wanting things to be different. And that the end of suffering comes when that wanting drops away, when there's just that complete acceptance of things as they are. Easy to say, not so easy to find in our own, in our own experience. But this was what the Buddha taught. This is what he said. This is important to look at. So in order to know this for ourselves, <clears throat> we come on retreat and we look within with this mindfulness, with what the Buddha called wise attention, contacting the actuality of our experience, not how we think it should be, not how we want it to be, but how it actually is. And we keep looking and we don't look superficially. We look and we look and we look and we find the more that we look, the more that we see. And so when we do this in a continuous way, many, many things happen. A whole process of learning occurs. And over time, we discover radically different ways of being with our own experience, with more compassion, less self-judgment, less self-condemnation. We learn a new way of seeing things. We see the world with the, the, the eyes of wisdom. So this transformation happens over time. It doesn't usually happen instantaneously, quickly. It happens as a result of effort, as a result of sustained effort. This quality of effort is mentioned over and over and over again in the text as being quite important. But what kind of effort is being referred to? And that's sort of what I want to talk about tonight. When I think back over my years of practice, some 25 years of practice, I can think of times in my practice when I made huge effort more effort than I had ever imagined I personally would even want to make or could make. And that huge effort paid off. There were big rewards for it. At a certain point in my practice, that was true. Then there were other times in my practice when no amount of effort seemed to produce anything, where there was just a a sense of, Effort being um, just, it didn't work. I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. It seemed to be quite futile. And then there were other times in my practice when I would say there was a very pervasive and real sense of an effortless effort where I felt completely carried by a momentum of the practice, a momentum of concentration, of mindfulness, where the real sense was that the practice was doing me. I was just showing up and it was sort of doing itself. I just happened to be there. 
an effortless effort. So at different times, we will experience, I believe, all these kinds of effort. And it is worth knowing about them. And so when this happens to you, you won't be surprised. So from this, I've understood that at different stages of our practice, different kinds of effort will occur, different kinds of effort are needed. And I want to talk about what some of these different kinds of effort might be. And I want to include some of the kinds of effort that don't work, perhaps to save you from some, some futility. The first kind of effort we make in practice is usually awakened by uh, inspiration. The inspiration of a teacher that we meet, the inspiration of something that we read or hear, something that inspires us, something that perhaps shows us in a whole new way a sense of possibility in our lives that we hadn't considered or that we hadn't felt empowered by. I know this happened for me uh, when I met my first Buddhist teacher, although at the time I didn't even know anything about Buddhism. I didn't know he was a Buddhist. I mean, it was all very... Uh, new to me, but I met a Buddhist teacher who was a, uh, a, a lama from Tibet. He didn't speak very good English. His English was quite broken, but there was something in the quality of his being that I found quite compelling. And so when I was I went to hear him speak, and most of what he said I really couldn't understand very well. But then suddenly something happened, and it was a moment that I can say actually changed my life. Somebody asked him a question about compassion, and he turned to respond to that question, and something lit up. I don't know if it just lit up in me or if it lit up in the whole room, But suddenly something came into me that said, oh my gosh, compassion is a living force. It's something real. It's not just a word, a nice word that I might have heard at some point in Sunday school. It was experienced by me as a quality of energy that was very alive and very powerful and very compelling, and it got my attention. I completely felt inspired by that experience. And even though I couldn't understand, and I didn't understand very much about Buddhism or about practice at that time, it drew me to him. It drew me to make the effort to learn more, to go forth and find out more about what were these, what were these teachings about. So, in our culture, you know, we don't 
have a lot of opportunities necessarily, unless we go a little bit out of our way, to find out other ways of being than the ways of being we have been taught. For example, how do we think about happiness in the American culture? It's a pursuit. Do we ever arrive? No. No. (laughs) What? Only if we buy stuff. stuff. (laughs) And does that do do it for us? We keep building bigger houses because we have more stuff to put in them. But does it bring happiness? The elusive happiness. What else do we think about happiness in our culture? Drugs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or some kind of escape from reality, or enhancement of it, a a seeming enhancement of it until you crash. So there's, there's ideas about happiness, but from the Buddhist perspective, genuine happiness is of a different order. There's a cartoon I'd like to share with you. A a holy man, you could say, a a wandering saint, sadhu, who is wandering with his staff, and he comes to a crossroad, and he sees a sign, and one arrow is pointing this way, the meaning of life. And another arrow is pointing this way, cheese and crackers. (laughs) Which way to go? In which direction are we drawn to make an effort? Sometimes, you know, we might be sitting here in the hall before lunch and having an amazing time just sitting here feeling, oh, this is great. Then the lunch bell rings and wow, what happens to that? Cheese and crackers are calling. Jack Cornfield's teacher, Achan Cha, said there are two kinds of suffering that we experience in practice. The first kind of suffering is the suffering that leads to more suffering. We are suffering with a pain in our knee. And then we start judging ourselves for having the pain in the knee. This is the kind of suffering we would say that leads to more suffering. We're adding to our suffering through the judgment. The second kind of suffering is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And that is the kind of voluntary suffering that you have submitted yourself to by coming on retreat. You have come here and let go of quite a bit of your ordinary pleasures, have you not? whether it's caffeine or your comfortable bed or hearing music or reading your favorite book or quite a bit of pleasure you have voluntarily surrendered in order to come here and live a more simple life. I know for me it was quite a revelation when I went on my one of my first retreats. And in those days, the retreat centers were not nearly as cushy as Spirit Rock is. This is, you know, 
the upper middle path, we call it. <laughs> Back in those days, it was more the, the lesser middle path. It was um, mostly living in abandoned buildings. But I remember this feeling of happiness on my first retreat, and I, w- I couldn't compute it because I was living in this totally shabby room with, you know, peeling wallpaper and a sink that hardly worked and a foam mat on the floor. And I was just so happy. And it went against my American uh, middle-class upbringing of, you know, that you need stuff to make you happy. You need things around you to make you feel okay. And it was the beginning of understanding the power of letting go, the power of simplicity, of simplifying, of restraint, of renunciation, we could say. Nisargadatta, one of the great sages of the world, no longer alive, but his writing lives on, he says this about the difference between happiness and pleasure. He taught often in, the, in, in dialogue. So somebody asks him the question, what is the difference between happiness and pleasure? And he says, pleasure depends on things. Happiness does not. The questioner says, then why are we not always happy? He says, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. The ultimate purpose of all practice is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is an actual and ever-present experience. The experience is of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. What an intriguing statement for the American mind. What kind of happiness could this be? And what kind of effort could it take to discover this kind of happiness? Does it pique your curiosity? Does it make you want to investigate, to find in your own experience what kind of happiness this could be? So one way our effort is often activated is through inspiration of one kind or another. Another kind of way our effort is sometimes activated is when we are in a crisis, when we find ourselves in some kind of situation, desperate or otherwise, in which our usual strategies are not working. We are thrown back on ourselves in a way that we feel 
we need a new way. A story about this kind of situation comes from a book about um, Sister Chan Kong, who was an associate of the Vietnamese monk um, Thich Nhat Hanh. She tells in this story about uh, her work during the Vietnam War in the villages of Vietnam and helping the villagers rebuild after there were bombing raids. And she tells of a time when they were in one village and four times the village was bombed. And after the fourth time, they felt just at the, you know, at the end of their ropes, really. And she says about this, um, how many young people were getting very angry. But she knew anger was not the right way. She said, in this practice, we have to restore the clearness of our mind before we can know what to do. So she said, I released my anger and the tension of that and tried only to dwell in the present moment. And at that, mo- at that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing. There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of the ruin. And I was truly moved. I could see, oh, the little flower has done her best. Why not me? So I tried to look more deeply. And I saw around me there were many people who suffered And there were also many good-hearted people, many bodhisattvas, including that little flower. I had to do my best to go in the direction of beauty. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, but life also has many heartful people, wonderful people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you and saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. At the right moment, one little flower may be enough to inspire our effort to move forward in a positive direction. So once our effort has been activated, our, our, we, are, we feel motivated to look within, to take a deeper look inside, the next stage of our practice requires a kind of sustained effort, a sustained training of our attention to keep looking, to keep turning towards our experience, to keep returning to present experience as our reference point. And so you come on retreat, just as you've done. You listen to instructions, even if you've heard them before. You sit, you walk, you do yoga with mindfulness. You do your work with mindfulness. Even when you feel the hindrances. How many of you have felt some hindrances today? Please raise your hands. Yeah, they are part and parcel 
of our practice, especially in the first few days. Restlessness, doubt, aversion, judgment, irritation, greed, lust, liking this, not liking that. Even in the face of the hindrances, the encouragement is to keep looking within. And in doing this, you are training yourself to see in a new way. Most of the time, what do we see? We see what we like. The teacher, Hamid Ali, writes this. The way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, we have to put these aside. Seeing things objectively objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad. It means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, he doesn't say, I don't like this, so I will ignore it. He may not personally care for the results because they don't confirm his theory, but pure science means seeing things the way they really are. If he says he's not going to pay attention to the experiment because he doesn't like it, that is not science. And for us in meditation, that is not reality. Another teacher, Leonard Jacobson, says, you spend very little time in the present moment. Have you noticed that? Reality exists only in the present moment. Therefore, you spend very little time in reality. That pretty much sums it up. Where are we spending our time? In thinking about reality, in fantasy, in planning, in regretting, in memory, all these things that take us away from this present reality. You know, in the culture now, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness, maybe Some of that even brought some of you here. In a way, it's a good thing. It has increased people's interest in mindfulness tremendously. But there's also a way in which it is taught sometimes that it's a little bit misleading because sometimes I see it advertised as practice, learn mindfulness, and you will, you know, feel more joy in living. Or, you know, they quote Thich Nhat Hanh, present moment, wonderful moment. As if, you know, the present is just a bowl of cherries and all you have to do is get present and your life will be, you know, just one great thing after, an, after the next. Well, that's a little bit misleading. <laughs> present moment is not always wonderful. You've noticed that, undoubtedly. <coughs> What's more accurate to say is that it is a good thing to be in the present because the present is where we are alive, where reality is showing itself, where we have an opportunity to wake up, where we have an opportunity to make choices in the direction of less suffering, 
That is the only place we have that opportunity. The Buddha talked about one fortunate attachment. We don't think of the Buddha as talking about having attachments. But this is the one fortunate attachment sutra. He says, let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know it and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is he or she, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. So he's giving us some clues here about the kind of effort that is required to be present, to keep coming back over and over again into the present experience. Relentless, ardent, invincible, unshakable. That's quite a commitment. And it takes, in some ways, it takes that kind of commitment because it is so against our usual tendency, which is to go off, to wander away, to forget, to get lost in thinking about or get lost in our fantasies of greed, of aversion, all that takes us away. These are very strong forces in the mind. So even though we need this kind of determined effort to keep looking, to keep coming into the present, It's also very true that it is not at all helpful to be judgmental of ourselves, to be critical of ourselves, to be, you know, there you go again, get back here. That kind of attitude is definitely not helpful. One of a student calls her internal critic, the cruel accountant. (laughs) The one who keeps accounts, you know, and is watching you with this critical eye all day. You blew it here. You're not good enough. You'll never make it. That is not helpful. That is not what is meant by being relentless and ardent and all that other thing. It is rather to be curious about the present, to be open to the present, to see what is occurring. It's like when you're doing an asana in the yoga practice, which is difficult for you. How much do you push your body? How much do you demand your body do this asana even if it kills you, you know? Well, you know that's not useful from your yoga practice. It's sort of more obvious when we come to the asanas that that's not a useful attitude. Nor is it useful just to give up entirely. Well, I can't do that. 
but to play the edge, to find that place where you're challenging yourself. You're going a little further than you ever thought you could, but with a kindness, with a a respectfulness of what is possible. I'll tell you a story now that taught me um, about a kind of effort that does not work. This was many years ago, and um, I think it was even before I met the Lama that I told you about. This was in the 70s, and I was living in Los Angeles. I had a friend who was a good friend of Leonard Cohen. And Leonard told my friend about this really cool Buddhist retreat center called Mount Baldy Zen Center. And he had told her that it would be a great place for her to go on retreat. So she said to me, why don't you come with me? I want to do this. Let's go together. Well, you know, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to do this thing together, you know, like like a girl's retreat or something. So clueless, I said, oh, sure, that sounds nice. Let's go, you know. And so we went to this um, what turned out to be what I call the Zen boot camp. (laughs) It is a form of Zen practice which is very, 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 very rigorous, Um, the most rigorous. This is the the kind of Zen that, you know, they walk barefoot in the snow and they eat one bowl of rice a day and they only sleep two hours and that kind of Zen. (laughs) And... um, You know, I have great respect for Zen, so nothing I'm about to say is in any way means meant to be disrespectful. It's more a comment on my, uh, both my cluelessness and the fact that it was asking of me an effort that I had no capacity to meet whatsoever. So we arrive, we're given our um, robes and um, we take off our shoes <laughs> all our earrings and our makeup and we're you know stripped down ready for the okay so we wake up at three o'clock bell ringing three o'clock um, then you the first thing is you run into the chanting room where you chant in Japanese for a half an hour to the beat of a drum. Boom, 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 boom. It wakes you up. It really does. After that, you run to the uh, first interview of the day. You have four interviews a day on this kind of retreat, meeting the resident Roshi, a very fierce traditional Zen master, um, not somebody who fools around, no, no nice talk, you know, no, hello, how are you, what's your name, none of that, none of that. You rush into his room, you bow, and then he asks you an impossible question. <laughs> the question he asked me, now this is now four in the morning, He asked me the question, uh, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? (laughs) My response was, I beg your pardon. (laughs) Nobody in my life had ever asked me such a question. I was completely unprepared for what this was about. And so he rings the bell, and now out I go. (laughs) 
And imagine having to go in there four times a day with the same kind of humiliation, complete humiliation. I never, ever understood what he was getting at. (laughs) And then, of course, we were sitting a lot. I think we had um, sitting and walking um, continuously. We had one hour break after lunch where you could decide what to do, either take a shower or take a nap. It was very exciting, you know, and then back to sitting and sitting, sitting, sitting. And the sitting posture is very precise, extremely, extremely precise. I remember my arms got so tense <laughs> that I actually couldn't bend them for so <laughs> I left the retreat kind of like this for days. No moving, no moving. Um, no weeping, which I began to do copiously. About three days in, I became the weeper. <laughs> And it got so bad that one time they came and carried me out. <laughs> I called it my Zen nervous breakdown. I was just beside myself. And they carried me into... <laughs> they took me into a side room and they said, Dear, perhaps you've had enough. The moment they said that, I said to myself, no way, no way am I giving up. My, instead of knowing anything about right effort, what clicked in was my total stubbornness and my, my willpower just said, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to be the failed one, the weeper that has to go home. I'm going to stick it out. But by that time, because I had been weeping, I actually felt quite a bit better, (laughs) quite a bit more relaxed. So I was able to go back in there and make it through to the end of the retreat. Well, um, it was an exercise in wrong effort, mostly, (laughs) because I, I didn't know what really was being... Uh, intended by all this, nor did I have the capacity to meet that kind of rigorous um, discipline. I hear from many people that this kind of practice has served them very well, so I I have great respect for people that can do that. Um, So what I have learned, what I learned from that experience and what I've learned from other experience is that the effort that is required in our practice has much less to do with willpower than it has to do with mindfulness itself, with our capacity to be aware in the moment of what is needed. The effort that I'm talking about is actually quite subtle and quite responsive to the needs of the moment. For example, if we are sitting here and we feel suddenly quite dull or sleepy, mindfulness will tell us what? We need to open our eyes. We need to bring in more energy. We need to help wake ourselves up a little bit more. We need to bring ourselves into a, 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 a state of more wakefulness. Or if we are doing our yogi job, we're chopping vegetables in the kitchen one morning and we keep getting distracted by what's going on in the kitchen. It's a very exciting place, the kitchen. They're doing all kinds of things, having conversations around us. So we might get distracted. Mindfulness is what will tell us, oh, 
come back, stay with the chopping so I don't end up chopping my fingers off. Mindfulness is what will tell us when we need to make more effort, more effort to be present. The Buddha talked about four great efforts that we make in our practice and that is required by awakening. And that the four great efforts are one, to diminish or alleviate our negative tendencies of mind, our bad habits, you could say. Secondly, to support the growth of our positive tendencies, which are also present and that we experience, even on retreat, you are experiencing I imagine by this time on retreat, you're beginning to sense moments when your own very good qualities are very much here with you. You suddenly feel a sense of calmness or peace or joy or equanimity or uh, just a delight or aliveness or this quality of peace that can come over you at any moment, even little bits of it. And these are your good qualities that begin to come up in practice. Third, the third great effort, to diminish the impact of potential negativity. For example, if we are addicted to something, and we know this about ourselves, a skillful effort would be not to put ourselves in situations where that addiction might want to come out and take over. So if we are fighting an addiction to alcohol, we wouldn't be hanging out in bars or that kind of situation. We are making an effort to support ourselves by not putting ourselves in situations where our addiction will be challenged. Fourth, we are encouraging positive tendencies to arise by putting ourselves in situations where they are likely to arise, like on retreat. Like on retreat. So those are four great efforts that will occur if you continue in this practice. So... As we practice and we make these different kinds of effort, the third kind of effort that comes over time is what I call sustaining effort. That is the effort to keep going in our practice no matter what, even when the results are not what we had hoped for. The kind of effort a marathon runner needs, really. This kind of effort, because it, 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 it speaks of our being here for the long run, it includes an appreciation of the paradoxical nature of all effort in practice. Because we finally have come to a stage of practice where we know the value of looking within, of connecting with truth, but the results may not be obvious or the results may not seem like enough. Hard as we try, we cannot produce the result we wish. What then? 
There was a phase like this in my own practice. I felt like I had hit a wall, kind of. I felt like I'd been on this wonderful treasure hunt. For me, practice from the very beginning was a great sense of adventure, actually, about it. And it went very well for a long time, and I felt like I kept finding the treasures, you know, that the treasure hunt was on, and I'd find the clues, and I'd practice, and I'd find the treasure, and it was just very, very rewarding. And then suddenly it felt like it stopped, and there was nothing I could do. Nothing was happening. People would say, oh, go sit with this person, go sit with that person, go talk to this person. Nada, nothing. And I felt, well, that's it then, you know, might as well, goodbye. But I couldn't, because by then practice had become too uh, much ingrained in my being. So I I kept on, but I, I still felt this nagging sense of, hmm, Nothing happening, nothing happening, nothing happening, nothing happening. Well, I'm here to say, fortunately, now I can say in looking back, it was a hard time to keep going. But in looking back, I can see that with a kind of stubbornness, with a kind of patience and a kind of trust, and actually through no willfulness on my part whatsoever. In fact, I think there was more of a surrender happening in my being than anything else. More of a surrender than I had ever experienced before, but in a a kind of subtle way. Lo and behold, one day, unpredictably, spontaneously, the next big letting go occurred. It arrived on its own. Stephen Batchelor has a description that I like a lot. It reminds me of my own experience. He says it's like watching the clouds in the sky. You are lying on a hilltop. You are gazing at the sky, waiting for the clouds to thin out or break apart. They are slowly and quietly moving. There is nothing you can do to make them break apart. Any effort is futile. No matter what state of mind you are in, the clouds will open at their own time and the sun will shine through. Does personal effort play no role at all? The more prepared and wakeful you are, the more you will be able to benefit from the breaking open of the clouds. So effort in this context is the perseverance to be patient and still. Perseverance in waiting is patience. If you are impatient, you might miss the moment when the clouds break apart. The moment will pass you by. The break in the clouds will go unnoticed. They will close again as silently and inconspicuously as they opened. Achan Sumedho, 
a wonderful monk in the forest tradition, an American who went to Thailand, talks about patience as a very in, a key component of his practice one summer in the northeast part of Thailand. In Thailand, in the forest monasteries of the Northeast, you have a chance to become very patient because their life is much less efficient and you have to endure. You have to endure through all kinds of unpleasant physical experiences, such as malarial fevers and the hot season. The hot season in the Northeast is one of the dreariest things I've ever experienced in my life. You wake up in the morning and you think, not another day. Everything seems so dreary. You think another hot day, an endless day of heat and mosquitoes and sweat, a seemingly endless day, one day after another. And then one reminds oneself, oh, what a wonderful opportunity for developing patience. He said, we have the hope that enlightenment will make us a more interesting with it person. But the Buddha wisdom is a very humbling wisdom and it takes a great deal of patience to be wise like Buddha. Buddha wisdom isn't a particularly fascinating kind of wisdom. It's not like being a nuclear physicist or a psychiatrist or a philosopher. Buddha wisdom is very humbling because it knows that whatever arises passes away and is not self. So our practice takes us on a journey and it will take us sometimes into places of surrender where all effort is of no avail, places where the best we can do is to be open and still and patient. A good analogy for practice really is that of planting a garden and watching it grow. Because a garden is not subject to our wishful thinking or to our will really. It's a play rather of causes and conditions. We do our part, we plant the seeds, we till the soil, we give the right nutrients, the right amount of water, the right amount of shade. And things grow in their own time, in their own way. They have their own life. So internally it is quite a bit the same. We plant the seeds of our intention, of our effort, our coming back over and over into the present, We continue to question, to investigate our experience, to be patient, to be open and still. And over time, this inevitably does bear fruit. Wisdom develops. Compassion grows. Whether you want it to or not, it will happen. So I'd like to close with um, Shantideva, one of my favorite You know, we all find things in the tradition that inspire us, or hopefully we find those things. And this is one of the pieces that inspires me by Shantideva. It's called The Miracle of Awakening. 
As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of life the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit together for a moment. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 7, 2006. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.